Welcome, everybody. Um, I'm Charles Davidson, the executive director of the Kleptocracy Initiative, and we're very happy to have today with us Dr. Mark Galliotti, who is a clinical professor of global affairs at New York University and founder of NYU's new initiative for the study of emerging threats. Dr. Galliotti is well known and respected for his expertise on transnational organized crime, security affairs, and political developments in modern Russia. In addition to authoring and editing more than a dozen books, his writing frequently appears in such publications as Foreign Policy, Politico, The Moscow Times, and Jane's Intelligence Review. He also co-hosts the Power Vertical podcast at RFERL, and his blog in Moscow's Shadows has a significant following in the foreign policy law enforcement, and intelligence communities. Dr. Galliotti was educated at Cambridge University and received his PhD in politics from the London School of Economics. Please join me in welcoming Mark Galliotti. Well, thanks very much, Charles, and hello to all of you. Thank you for coming. Um, Essentially, I have a title which pretty much allows me to talk about anything I really want to relating to Russia, especially because obviously crime, politics, business, the dividing lines are fairly hazy, distinctly porous, and sometimes entirely meaningless um, when we're talking about this country. So I'm going to talk about the first, in the next 30 or 40 minutes, um, just to sort of set up some, some of my thoughts as to how things are, you know, what is going on in Russia, how things are changing, and what might be the various uh, future responses, and then we'll sort of go on to d- d- discussion and then questions. But let me just start with the most absolutely fundamental question for a, a place like this and a topic like this. Is, is this a kleptocracy? What actually is Russia? And in, in some ways, this whole talk will be about trying to sort of unpick the elements. We have kleptocracy, we have mafia state... Well, I don't really like the term mafia state because I think it actually obscures more than it reveals. And kleptocracy, to me, doesn't fully encapsulate it. Yes, absolutely, there are kleptocrats in Russia. That is without any doubt. A core element of the way the system operates is the illegal distribution of assets through patrimonial and and other connections. But if we decide that that is all there is to Russia... Actually, I think we are doing it a disservice. We are doing ourselves a disservice. And let's be honest, managing relations with Russia would be a lot easier if it was just a kleptocracy. We know how to deal with kleptocracies. We've dealt with kleptocracies for a long time. We don't have a problem, alas, with kleptocracies. We do have a problem with Russia. And part of the reason why we have a problem with Russia is that Russia also has believers. And it has believers right at the centre of power who are happy to live a very nice life indeed. Where would, after all, any of us be without temperature-controlled um, storage for our furs? Um, but at the same time, they actually do have a sense that they are engaged in some grand historic mission, whether it's rebuilding a Russian state, preserving a Russian cultural identity, or whatever. They accumulate wealth in part because of simple greed and in part because it is almost the natural accretion 
that takes place in this system. We have to realize, in Russia today, the true currency is not the ruble, it is not the dollar. In Russia, if you have political power, then you can monetize it without a problem. And in some ways, it gets monetized even if you're not trying to do so. Because people will want you to do things, people will want to give you gifts, people will want to bring you in to various circles of theirs. Conversely, if you just have money, you have money today, but if you don't have political power, then you, your money is basically just being held in trust until the state decides that that money is actually someone else's. You are rich today, but you need not be rich tomorrow. This is not a country in which the rule of law permits you to actually have any guarantees over, over your property. So actually, this is a country which is run by power and not by money. And also, we mustn't avoid the fact that there is actually also a working rational state. We obviously look at and concentrate on the flaws, the abuses, of which there are many, but we must not avoid the fact that actually most cases that go to court get re resolved on the law, not because someone slips a bribe to the judge. Certainly that, that, that's my impression and so forth. Um, there are many people within the state apparatus who basically want to do their job. Now, it might be that they also are willing in certain circumstances to accept a little backhander here, a little perk there. But basically speaking, they want to do the job. So in some ways, what's interesting about Russia is we have three separate realms that, in a kind of Venn diagram come conical structure, you have a working rational state, which, all else being equal, carries the day. However, whenever corruption and kleptocratic interests come to play, they beat the workings of the rational state. They're always a, a trump card. However, above that, there is a third level, which is precisely this, I don't know what you want to call it, state mission, state building project, politics. Ultimately, politics will beat corruption. So, a working rational state, a corrupted kleptocratic state, and a political mission. These are the three levels. And in some ways, you can see this evolution taking place, um, even just by looking at, say, a city like Moscow. In the 1990s, uh, Mel Lushkov was infamous for corruption. Um, this is being live-streamed and so forth. So, of course, I would say these are allegations only, which have not been proven in a court of law. However, there are allegations which I think it's fair to say that most Mos Muscovites are comfortable with asserting. Um, but the point is, as it were, under, in, in Lushkov's Moscow no doubt because of oversights on his part. Um, corruption was entirely predatory and pretty much entirely destructive. These were people who were eating at the state. Now, under Sabyanin, I would hesitate to say there is no corruption in Moscow. But on the other hand, Moscow has been rebuilt quite comprehensively. Moscow works Admittedly, it's done so you know, largely on the basis of sucking the resources out from the rest of European Russia. But, you know, I, I come from London, which basically has prospered largely on the basis of sucking the resources out of most of England. And um, that is what big, dynamic capital cities do. We can't blame it on, on any one particular regime. 
So there is corruption, but there is also building. And I think this is actually one of the transitions we've seen. It's in some ways a new model kleptocracy that realizes that it isn't just about um, devouring what you can, sending it into Swiss bank accounts, and letting the system fall. They also feel the need to somehow create create a state. So we have this, let's call it hybrid kleptocracy. Um, New model, perhaps more kind of responsible, caring kleptocracy. The problem is the extent to which the current crisis is changing fundamentally many of the aspects, many of the, of the, of the principles um, on which the, the Putin system was, was built. Um, and it's, it's changing how crime and politics intertwine. And I think it's changing um, the, the freedom there has been to create a social contract which allows or seemed to allow for a time a rational state to emerge, people who had power to be bought off through allowing them kleptocratic opportunities, and at the same time, Russia to assert itself as a renewed global power. Something, in other words, is going to have to give. Okay, so what actually is changing? Well, I mean, we are, we are seeing ordinary crime um, increase. Last year, it was up 14.3% nationally. Um, and even, even in, in Moscow, it was up 4.5%. We're also actually seeing, um, and I'll talk in a bit more detail about this, a considerable expansion in the scale, depth, and veracity um, of corruption. And the reason I dwell on that for a moment is because crime and corruption are indices of legitimacy. They are indices of how effectively a system is working, at least as important as Putin's personal approval ratings. Um, If you cannot protest, if you do not feel that there is any way in which you can meaningfully express an opinion through the ballot box or through other forms of of public participation, and yet you are unhappy, what do you tend to do? You fight back. I mean, human beings are great at this. We are sneaky creatures. We find ways of resisting. And sometimes the resisting means opting out. I remember the the horrifically high suicide rates in the late Brezhnev uh, through into the 1980s era in the Soviet Union. Um, But at the same time, we we steal. We steal time by not putting in all the time we should. I mean, when I say we, clearly I don't mean you because you're all fine, upstanding citizens, and clearly I don't mean me either. But those other people, they they steal time, um, they steal assets or whatever. That's, that's, that's what we do. It's one of the ways in which, in which we fight back against the system. And therefore, I think it's worth looking at these as, as indices of how Russians are feeling about their place in the world. And it's also, we see organized crime going through a period of transformation at this time as well. Um, it predates the crisis, to be honest, particularly because of Af- Afghan heroin. Um, about a third of all Afghan heroin these days passes through the so-called northern route um, through Russia, mainly heading towards Europe, some heading for consumption within Russia, a very small amount heading towards China, though that last point can change. But the point is, this is a massive, massive money earner. And already, even before the current um, economic and geopolitical crisis, it was reshaping the basic dynamics of of Russian organized crime, the kind of um, established status quo and pecking order which had emerged from the mob wars of the 1990s. Um, Because what it meant is that some gangs which had been in relative backwaters 
now, because those backwaters happen to be hubs for heroin trafficking, are doing very, very well indeed. And so you have other gangs thinking, well, should we muscle in on their turf? Or them thinking, well, we've got a lot of money. Shouldn't we actually be regarded as more powerful than, than most of the other groups think of ourselves? Um, so, you know, you already had a considerable pressure on the status quo even before the current crisis. And then the current crisis hit. First of all, I mean, we really have to sort of emphasize the extent to which the collapse in the ruble has, again, had, a, had an impact on organized crime. So what it means is, if you are a group whose main, or at least have significant assets that are not in rubles, which could mean, for example, that you smuggle heroin into Western Europe for euros, or it could be all kinds of other things. Um, but the point is, if you are a non-ruble gang, you're doing very well indeed, because suddenly your cash buys a lot more in the local economy. However, if on the other hand you are a gang that it depends on the ruble economy and also depends on predating, on plundering the local economy, you're probably doing badly. Um, you know, if you're the sort of group that, for example, dealt with protection racketeering, well, many of the businesses that you would, would draw money from now actually have much smaller profit margins, if at all, and, and that's assuming they haven't actually closed down. They can't afford to pay you as much, and what they're paying you is in rubles, and rubles go that much less far. And as, as we'll come to in a moment, the interesting thing is the extent to which actually Russia's, if I say underground economy, I don't mean in the sense of underground market, but actually it's criminal economy, shall we say, actually is pegged to the dollar and the euro rather than the ruble. So from a gangster's point of view, rubles, certainly in the moment, they don't make, make very much. So again, what we actually have is, is, is pressures that are further bringing into question the existing status quo, the existing pecking order with, within organized crime. There are brand new opportunities. Um, I'm, I'm increasingly cheered by the notion of cheese runners um, bringing industrial strength, uh, sort of amounts of smuggled goods through Belarus in, into Russia. Um, I mean, it sounds ridiculous on one level. But already it actually is meaning that you have regions such as Bryansk, which were never regarded as hubs of, frankly, anything, um, whose gangs are suddenly prospering dramatically because they can bring in all kinds of goods that the people are willing, willing to pay for or whatever. Um, and you know, I, th I, th I think we, we're going to see that, that more, more broadly. Um, stolen goods, for example, stolen Western goods that, that can be brought in. Um, at a time when, after all, the Western goods may be either not available because of sanctions, whether Western or Russian, or available but exceedingly expensive because of the ruble crash. Well, if you can steal it, actually your costs become much more manageable. Um, and, and so you can, you can sell it. And frankly, a lot of people are willing to buy goods cheaply. Counterfeit is another area where we're seeing quite a spike um, in, in Russian markets. You know, you want something that looks like a branded good, but you can't afford it, unless you happen to be the patriarch on your, on your watch or similar. But let's say you want to emulate the patriarch. You can't afford a Rolex, but you can afford a sort of Rolex-ish. Um, you know, so, so actually, there are whole new sectors. Well, not, not new sectors, but new sectors, sectors suddenly getting a whole new um, burst of activity as people adapt to the current economic um, and, and political regime. And these shifts in the balance of power always bring with them the prospect, the danger of conflict. 
in many ways, I feel the parallel is, is Europe before World War I, where Germany had become a strong power but was not considered to be a strong power. It didn't have that place in the sun. And after a certain point, there was going to have to be a reckoning. And likewise, you had powers such as the Ottoman Empire or the Habsburg Empire that really, I hesitate to say, had, had outlasted their shelf life, but nonetheless, you know, ultimately could not muster the kind of force to protect themselves. But so far, this hasn't exploded into the sort of potential mob war. I mean, it sort of came close-ish when one particular fellow, Soyan, was killed. And it's interesting, well, who, who is actually acting to damp it down? There are three basic forces that are acting to damp down the potential for, for a, a mob war conflagration. One is the state. I mean, it has been made clear to organized crime, and you know, there are contacts, after all, between the state apparatus and the gangsters, that the state will be very unhappy if we start getting kind of overt crime on the streets, which, makes, which will begin to give the impression that the state is not in charge. So in some ways, you know, whoever fires the first bullet can expect the state to, to deal with them very, very harshly. Secondly, it's actually the Slavic gangs, um, who actually represent the majority of Russian organized crime. Uh, the Interior Ministry always likes to talk about you know, the Georgians and the Chechens and the Dagestanis and the Armenians and everyone else. It's actually ethnic Russians that make up the majority of gangsters. Um, and they're, they're relatively happy with the status quo, or simply, or at least they, they don't want it damaged. The third element are the Chechens. And this is not a, a Kadyrov factor. Um, Kadyrov does not control all Chechens, Chechen organized crime, or really very much outside of Chechnya itself, but he makes up for it with his grip on Chechnya. Um, but nonetheless, it is clear that actually Chechen organized crime, which is a, a very powerful component, um, again, is quite happy with the status quo. The reason I stress this is because it says something about the nature of, of modern Russia, that you can have a de facto alliance between the police, Slavic gangsters, and Chechen gangsters, trying to preserve a status quo that is being pressurized by a whole variety of, of, of other different groups. So corruption. There's been some interesting data recently. Um, in 2013, according to the courts itself, the average size of bribes for which convictions, and I stress that, um, were secured, went down quite dramatically from 7,500 rubles in 2011 to 2,500 in 2013. And likewise, according to the courts, in 2014, 80% of all convictions were bribes of 10,000 rubles or less. 10,000 rubles, really not that much. At the same time, the Interior Ministry has said that in the first half of 2015, the, the size of the average bribe almost doubled from 109,000 rubles to 208,000 rubles. There seems to be quite a discrepancy between these figures. The courts are talking about really quite penny-ante um, and are actually dwindling, you know, shrinking bribes. And the Interior Ministry is talking about much more extensive and actually increasing bribes. It's not quite as contradictory as it seems. The courts are talking about convictions. The Interior Ministry is talking about its belief in what the actual bribes are. So in other words, bribes are getting bigger, but the ones that are actually being successfully prosecuted are getting smaller and more and more trivial. So the moral of the story is, clearly, if you are going to, com to commit corruption in Russia, make sure it's a proper six-figure sum. It's far, far safer 
Um, but the, the other interesting dimension, about, apart from the fact that clearly it's a small fry that are actually being sort of swept up, is that if you look at the MBD data and look at the ruble to dollar rate, you actually get a much, much more stable figure. It's gone up nearly from $3,050 to $3,315. Far, far less of an increase. What does this say? The people who are, as it were, shaping the market for bribes are actually people whose economy is based on dollar or other foreign currencies rather than rubles. It's almost incidental what the actual ruble rate is. So we're talking about people who use foreign currencies, buy things that are imported, and that is a, a substantial element um, of, of, of their sort of um, shopping basket, um, or who depend upon foreign services. In other words, this is, this is not your Omsk truck driver, probably. This is much more likely to be someone of a certain degree of affluence and aspiration. For the Omsk truck driver, he might pay a little bribe, but if nothing else, he's probably still um, using the old Russian practices of blood, of the economies of favor. And I'll come on to that in a minute. So what we're actually seeing is an age in which corruption is shifting, it's shifting backwards. Until quite recently, corruption was still a significant factor within Russia, but it was, and it's fascinating how often I, I found this talking to Russians, it was civilized Splendid notion, civilized corruption. What, what does civilized corruption mean? Well, it meant that it was manageable and predictable. You know, you know who you had to pay. You know how much you had to pay. So you could factor it into your business plan, shall we say. If you paid it, they stayed bribed. You know, it, it, it was an exchange for a service. And, and if you paid the right amount, then you get the service. But also increasingly, actually, you didn't necessarily need to pay a bribe. Um, again, if I think of examples that I heard, everything from setting up a new business to um, you know, getting your doctor to see you appropriately or whatever, if you did it without paying a bribe, it might take a while. You might not get quite the same service as otherwise. But basically speaking, you could... Except if you're in certain situations, I mean, actually setting up a small business is, is, is one particularly fraught area. But you know, for most people, you could live your life basically without bribing people. Bribes became simply ways of expediting and facilitating. You know, you'd still get the license, but if you paid someone off, what could take two months might take two days. Um, what might require you to get affidavits and sort of stamped statements from 10 offices or people, maybe you could skip all that tedious paperwork, whatever. So in some ways, it was a little bit more like the uh, sort of the express lines that uh, certain um, airlines have. You know, you want, you, want, you want to skip all the tedium of having to queue in the line with everyone else, just pay us 20 bucks and, and, and you're, you're, you're a VIP. It was this sense that, that corruption was becoming, shall we say, an optional add-on to your life rather than an absolute requirement. That's what was changing. Not everywhere, and certainly, again, you know, the further you go from the main metropola, the less, as in so many other ways, the less advanced things were. But there was a sense that this was a dynamic. It's very much being rolled back now. I mean, this is something that I've, I've been getting. It's, it's really quite striking how, once again, corruption is becoming predatory, 
competitive and something that it's harder and harder to avoid. Um, and the trouble is that there's new pressures all around that people transfer onto others, which in, in course forces other people into the corruption market. For example, the Interior Ministry has had to absorb a 10% cut in its payroll across the board, which has meant, therefore, that there's been a kind of process of, in effect, reaccreditation. It's not quite the case that everyone has to reapply for their job, but that's pretty much what we're talking about. Now, the idea, and Russia is, if nothing, a source of great ideas, um, is that this provides an opportunity to weed out um, the inefficient, the superannuated, and so forth. However, this is also a splendidly monetizable opportunity. So in many cases, not every, but in many cases, from what I've been you know, told from, from people with, within this realm, um, instead what happens is the, the major in charge of the accreditation for one particular unit sort of basically says, okay, well, of the 20 of you, two of you are going to be going. I'm going to be thinking about this over the weekend, um, and I'll come back on Monday and decide. And the question is, then, you have a weekend to think, well, how much money can I pull together to stick in an envelope to be waiting on this guy's desk when he comes in on Monday morning? Essentially, what you actually get is the perverse incentive that has meant that you basically preserve the most effectively corrupt cops. As I said, not in every division, not every time, but certainly that, that's one of the sort of ways. And so what happens, so, so if you're a cop and you suddenly have to basically pay to keep your job, let alone then pay to rise or whatever, well, where are you going to get that money? Yes, of course, you have a salary, and nowadays it's a reasonable salary, but no one would regard it as abundant, but it may well be that you've got a spouse and you've got kids, other expenses, and the kids want to go to university, and now it seems that actually if you want to get into a good university, we're back to the bad old days of how much you're going to pay to the admissions officers or whatever else. You have a whole variety of brand-new, off-the-books um, demands on your resources. Now, either you say, I'm sorry, family, we must be honest, and to that you will have to be poor. Or you think... I have a badge, I have a gun, I have a uniform. If I can't turn that into money, then what on earth am I doing here? So it creates a pressure for you to be corrupt, and therefore you will extort money off other people, and so it goes. And the trouble is the Russian state doesn't really know how to deal with this. I mean, it had a wonderful idea. One of the most notorious problems for small businesses was fire inspections. The fire inspectors would always expect to be given a bribe. So they decided, well, okay, for most businesses, what we're going to shift from annual fire inspections to a fire inspection just every five years. So there's fewer of these particular sort of um, opportunities for extortion. Well, what happened? Well, fire inspectors can do the math too. They just started charging five times as much because they knew they had to get enough to get them through the lean years in between. You know, people have an extraordinary capacity to cope with new situations. So, corruption is clearly getting worse. It is getting more and more obtrusive. Um, it is getting to be, I would say, something that is definitely clearly impacting on how people sort of, how people act. Only 2.2%, for example, of Russians, according to a poll in Vidomosti, actually want or even considering setting up a new business. And certainly, again, speaking to people, 
the, the sort of people who you know, want to be starting up activity at the bottom end of the, of the economic spectrum, um, they're the ones who find it hardest. Still, much of it is, is an economy of favors, and ironically enough, particularly at the top of the system, um, which again is nothing new. It goes back to, what was it? Um, Arkady Vaxberg wrote a book called Soviet Mafia back in the day. Um, and he described that if you wanted to bribe like a local party first secretary, who after all was, a, was, was, was the demigod of, of, of his or occasionally her region, you wouldn't turn up at first with, with, with cash. How could you? You would actually turn up with a basket of fruit that you'd gathered from your dacha's garden. Because he was particularly vitamin C deprived? No, of course not. But simply because it was actually symbolic. It was saying, look, I want to become part of your patronage network. I want to be one of your clients. And I'm using this to, sh to show symbolically that that's what's happening. Well, that, I, th I would suggest whether it in involves fruit or whether it involves, I notice you can now buy iPhones with, with, with Putin's head embossed in gold on them, you know, gifts like that, who knows. Um, but it's not really about the money. Instead, I, I get the sense at the top of the system is actually that really it's about passing people opportunities which can in turn be monetized. It's not I will give you money. It's that, hmm, I happen to have a contract here, which, if managed well, will bring someone's corporation a huge profit. To whom shall I give this particular contract? Um, and likewise, you're probably not expecting cash. You're expecting some similar reciprocal thing. It could be, could be goods, it could be property, or again, it, it could be an opportunity, it could be access. We're talking about a, a phenomenally complex corrupt system. Um, in which actually the commodities are not obvious, gross, and thus trackable ones. So let's, let's kind of throw all this together. This I mean, creates for me a huge dilemma for the Kremlin in the current circumstance. This is not a system that evolved by accident. This is a system that was created because it was very, very good at doing some of the things that Putin and co. wanted it to do. To cohere an elite, which had become thoroughly incoherent during the Yeltsin era, and um, thoroughly competitive and dangerously so, and controlling them. The great virtue when everybody has a skeleton in their closet is when you get to decide whose closet gets checked through. And you can be shocked, shocked to discover evidence of corruption um, on someone's part. So everyone becomes vulnerable, but as long as everyone plays the game, no one need to suffer. Very good. When you have 7% economic growth year on year, when you can afford, therefore, to keep the populace happy with improving quality of life, and let's face it, until relatively recently, Russians have lived better than they ever have in their history. Um, and you have the money to buy off the elite, and you have money to buy tanks and, and do all the other things that, that sort of great global powers do. And so what you get is, is, is this tight integration of crime, politics, and business, which in some ways is actually closest to Japan or Italy um, in the decades immediately after World War II, um, and up to maybe so the, the, the 1980s. Not so much a mafia state as a nationalized mafia. See, mafia state carries with it the implication, as it were, that the kind of criminals are in charge. I would suggest that, in fact, what happened was that organized crime was instead brought into the power structure. It could do various things, and that was its role. 
and in return it was allowed certain latitudes to enrich itself. But there was never any question that who ultimately was in charge. Now we have ordinary Russians feeling the squeeze, which is something that actually becomes both delegitimizing for the regime, which is one reason why we're having the current sort of emphasis on, on, on spectacle, whether military or otherwise, as an attempt to find an alternative means to, to legitimize, um, and also economically inefficient. You know, if people are stealing, if people are being more concerned about looking after their own and their family's needs rather than doing their job, that, that all becomes a problem. You have a growing cost, awareness of the cost of elite corruption. Um, and this is coming out more and more and more in the rhetoric that we're getting from the Kremlin. And it's easy to say, well, of course, they're going to say that or whatever. But I think there is a difference in tone and in scale of, of Kremlin concerns about corruption. I think they are realizing that it hits the absolutely crucial point, which is it, becomes, it really has become a national security issue. For a while they've been saying this, corruption's a national security issue. I think they suddenly think, oh my God, corruption is a national security issue. I think they actually mean what they're saying more um, now. Um, and therefore the current scale of the sort of the, the social contract uh, has been something of, of, of an indulgence, one that they can't afford. Now, this is already a contested issue. This is something that actually is being played out, I would suggest, within um, the political structures um, of Russia. Um, we see increasingly sort of public attention being given to uh, embezzlement and corruption within strategically important areas and businesses. Uh, military procurement, for example. Um, it's quite interesting that they actually did create, quite recently, um, a military police force first time they've actually had a dedicated military police force um, and the talk is currently that next year it actually will be acquiring its own specialised economic crime um, division, which again is, is a big deal because up to now this has been something that the Federal Security Service has handled and in a way the FSB doesn't tend to relinquish powers it acquires. Um, Roscosmos spacing, I mean what, 2014 they're, they're talking about 92 billion rubles has been lost and I don't think it's because it's behind this, uh, the sofa cushions. Uh, Spetsdroy, even possibly the unexpected departure of Yakunin, the head of Russian railways. Now, the most, re most recent story is that um, he, he left because his son has applied for English citizenship, um, which, of course, I can understand fully. But I, I really don't buy it, because in a way, the, the, the Russian elite anyway is so thoroughly sort of keen on... Um, embedding itself within foreign countries that I, I, I don't see why, why that would have been such a crucial issue. I think it's as much as anything else that, in fact, he just felt he, it was felt that he wasn't doing his job, that Russian railways was requiring more and more federal subsidies. Um, this is it. You can be corrupt, but you have to do your job. That is part of the current social contract. I think there was an increasing awareness that actually, although Yakunin had done a great job of presenting himself as the man who had revamped Russian railways, the actual extent to which, in reality, he'd done so on the back of very, very generous government subsidies was, was, was really coming to bite. We're also seeing <coughs> excuse me, um, professionals within the system, I think, trying to use this as a sort of brief little window of opportunity to try and do their job um, and open new investigations and so forth, which, again, is an interesting parallel, I mean, I, I would say, with Italy when at times when the political system has been weak, you've actually seen the police and, above all, the investigative magistracy going out there and trying to open cases because that's what they've really been wanting to do. That's what they joined to do. 
I often struck talking to, to law enforcers within Russia is actually that they're cops. There is a universal brotherhood and sisterhood of police officers. Um, police officers tend to be much, much more common with each other than, than, than with the rest of, of humanity. You know, Russian cops are cops. They might have slightly different tolerances for certain practices than the Metropolitan Police Bobby or an NYPD officer. But they're still cops, and most of them want to be cops. So I think some of them are using this as an opportunity. And in other cases, we're seeing in interests trying to protect themselves. Quite interesting, the Federal Security Service has recently pushed a law, uh, draft law, which would actually roll back some of the really quite impressive transparency measures that we have seen in Russia about access to finding out who owns various forms of property. Um, now, they, they, they say that's for state security, but clearly it's not. It's clearly it's because they precisely they, they don't want people poking into who owns what, like indeed the kleptocracy initiative here at Hudson. So what, what can the Kremlin do? Well, ordinary people are doing what they have to do. Um, they are you know, making, making what money they can when they can, economizing when they have to, removing themselves from the firing line, you know, not getting involved in small business or that kind of thing. The bureaucracy is very much resisting attempts to control it. Um, Sergei Ivanov, um, sort of the, the kind of Darth Vader um, of the Kremlin, um, in the first, according to him, in the first half of 2014, 120,000 investigations against uh, allegedly corrupt officials were launched. Well, that sounds quite impressive. However, then when you dig a bit more deeply, of those, 5,000 officials were held accountable. Okay, well, what does held accountable mean? Well, in most cases, it means a fine or an official reprimand. Of those 120,000 investigations, they led to 200 dismissals, 4%. Now, given that I think it's fair to say that it's not because the Russian legal system bends over backwards to protect the rights of the accused... Um, you know, I think it's clear that this is just a measure which actually it's very difficult. Even if you genuinely are trying to, 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 to dig out corrupt officials, it's actually very, very difficult to do so. And the upper elite clearly is highly resistant to any kind of generalised redrafting of the social contract. And this leads to, to, to also, or rather is affected by the geopolitical tensions. I mean, on the one hand, Russia's ability to project its power internationally is undermined by its poor economy, um, embezzlement of resources and so forth. But on the other hand, Russia also, it's, I think it's fair to say in some ways its geopolitical position is dependent upon its ability to corrupt, to corrupt outsiders, to use organized crime outside of Russia, um, ranging from the thugs in Crimea who suddenly emerged as local self-defense volunteers um, alongside the special forces, polite people in the annexation. Um, and indeed, some of the militants in the Donbass, who are clearly no more than local organized crime gangs, just simply sort of given free reign, to the use of organized crime in Europe, in Asia, and in North America as an intelligence asset. Not even necessarily Russian organized crime. They don't really care. Anyone whom, whom they can hire. So this is the thing. So, so, so Russia finds itself, even geopolitically, its position is linked to this interpenetration of crime, business, and politics. So, let me wrap this up. What, what is Russia? I mean, I'm playing with terms. I mean, I always feel it's, it, 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 it's maybe kleptocracy plus. It's, it's, it's a kleptocracy, but with this overlay of political purpose that I think does change the nature of it. Kleptocracy is about, really just about the plunder of the state for private gain. Russia is a case in which, as it were, kleptocratic impulses have been harnessed 
to a specific um, project as an instrument of governance. And it ranges from gangsters to economic officials to whoever. This is actually how the Kremlin marshals this whole complex of, of instruments. It's a, one of the perverse triumphs of Putinism. But this is increasingly under, under tension. Um, does the regime continue just simply to focus on the kleptocracy and keep the elite happy in a way that will make the, the masses unhappy and might also impact Russia's ability to be, project its great power status? Or does it look to strengthen governance, which is actually going to mean um, challenging the elite? I do not see Putin as being one who would challenge the elite for a variety of reasons. I mean, I believe he is, he is genuine in his commitment to a great Russia. And it's impossible to know quite what Putin thinks, but I, I think it would be surprising if he didn't have some sense of the disconnect, indeed the positive um, extent to which actually kleptocracy undermines Russia's ability to be the kind of power he thinks it ought to be. But I'm not convinced he has the creative energies needed for a major change, and I'm not sure he has the guts. Um, we have this notion of Putin as this extraordinary sort of dynamic macho figure, bare-chestedly sort of riding a bear into the sunset, while at the same time taking on the West and China. Actually, he is in so many ways terribly risk-averse. Sometimes he gets it wrong. I think he's got it wrong over Syria, and he's definitely got it wrong over the Donbass, but I think he, he works when he feels he knows, when he believes that he knows what the likely outcomes are. Challenging the elite would be such an unpredictable, essentially political civil war. Personally, I, 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 I don't think he has it in him. So I think this is more likely going to be a, a generational issue. It's going to be up to his successor or indeed successors who are going to have to deal with trying to unpick this problem and either wholeheartedly accept kleptocracy and decide, look, never mind Russia's great place in the world. They just get a really big palace each. And that's, I wouldn't say fine, but that's an understandable and classic route. Or actually decide that they want to do something about it, which could be either the, the liberal route or the authoritarian route. I mean, you know, we have to realize that change need not be for the good thing. So what, what should we do? Well, we obviously need to be much more effective in protecting ourselves. There is not, not much we can do about fixing kleptocracy in Russia. Russians will have to fix that if they choose to do so. Um, we are, in moral terms, in economic terms, in pragmatic terms, at war with Russia. It's not a term we really like. It's not a kind of expression that sits well with us because we're, we're nice democratic nations. We like to, particularly speaking as a European, we like to avoid trouble. Um, but certainly in the Russian terms, the point where we start launching sanctions, we, we, we started being at war with Russia. We need to accept that. And therefore, in that context, we need to decide. Because kleptocracy in Russia is once a moral ill that we genuinely want addressed for the good of ordinary Russians. We're not. We would like people, we'd like everyone around the world on the whole to be happy. Um, you know, that's one of the things that actually defines us. At the same time, kleptocracy is a weapon that is used against us, and I think we'll be talking more about this uh, afterwards, um, in the way that the Russians use money as an instrument to try and influence and undermine and deter and distract and dismay and divide us. Kleptocracy is an inefficiency 
within Russia that in some ways is actually quite useful to us. I mean, actually, just think how much more of a problem Russia would be if it was efficient. If they didn't have, like, 40% of the procurement budget in one form or another being wasted, it's a lot more tanks and planes and guns that they could have. So in some ways, thank God for kleptocracy. And at the same time, kleptocracy is also a weakness that if we choose to do so, we could actively um, exploit. At the moment, kleptocracy is this weapon against us. Well... If, if nothing else has become clear in the modern world, it is every connectivity goes both ways. So there's just a few thoughts I will throw out, and then I'm happy to bring it through to discussion, Charles. Thank you very much for your time. Sound? Okay. Well, I'm so glad we invited Mark here because he sort of put me out of business. Now I can find something uh, else to do. Uh, no, but this is, we have a hybrid kleptocracy that engages in hybrid war, uh, and, and this is a very nuanced and sort of confusing uh, view of what's going on in, in Russia in many ways. And probably uh, very realistic. I'm, I'm certainly not going to challenge any of Mark's descriptions of all this because he knows that intimately from the inside. Um, and compared to a lot of what we've looked at uh, and some of the events we've done here before, this is more of a bottom-up view of what's really going on in the society as opposed to a, a top-down, uh, simply political analysis. Um, so I'm wondering how, uh, if we accept Russia as an adversary, how do we make sense of Russia as an adversary? What matters in this regard and what doesn't? Oh, how do we make sense? Oh, so that, that's all you want. Um, how do we make sense of Russia and what matters? Um, I mean, I think for me, one of the issues... and. I always approach this. I mean, my, my first degree was in history. I think of myself as an historian, first and foremost. Um, and historians are about two things. One is just telling good stories. Um, but the other one is actually looking at comparisons. And on one level, look, great power rivalries are not unusual. Um, actually, you know, America is engaged in a similar sort of frenemy-style rivalry with China, very sort of actively. Um, in some ways, it is engaged in a struggle with Europe over different models for the, you know, for, for, for the global order. I mean, the, this, this is nothing new. So when I say, okay, well, what is, what is distinctive? What is different about what's currently happening? And I think the issue is, in a way, not so much what we're doing, but what Russia is doing. I mean, I think that, that, that Russia actually is, is, is very active in its desire to address, and it's not just about, I mean, it's not, it was never about the Donbass, it was never really about Syria. It is about the global order. I mean, I think, for me, this is the crucial element. Russia is, I would say, a revisionist power. In some cases, it's trying to hold on to existing dictators or whatever, but basically speaking, 
Russia is challenging a model of the world that says there are global values, there are global laws, there are global structures, and they should apply beyond and over national boundaries. I mean, time and again, Putin talks about sovereignty. And his sovereignty is not quite the way we use the word sovereignty. His notion of sovereignty is basically get out of my face. It's no one ultimately should be able to tell Russia what to do, how to run its affairs or whatever. But, and this is the crucial element, I mean, in some ways that would have a certain legitimacy, a certain honesty, if he'd said, and the same is true of everyone else. You know, you guys, you in, in, in gay ropa, you know, you want to fall into moral degradation, that's that, that's your problem and, and God will judge you, but, but basically do your own thing. His view is clearly that actually sovereignty is something that, that Russia has and that is dependent upon your capacity to impose it. Ukraine has no sovereignty. Why? Because it's not Russia. Um, the outside world, in some ways, has no sovereignty. I mean, because the, after all, the things that, that Russia is doing in terms of um, funding p mischievous and divisive political movements in Europe and indeed in the United States and that kind of thing, these are all things that, that Russia regards as threats when they're done to Russia. Um, but he's happy to do it. Now, it's not just because he's a hypocrite. I think there is this concept. There is this concept that basically there are no rules. And that, for me, is, is I would say, the one key thing to think about when, when, we, when we're considering Russia, is that it's not, just, there, there isn't that same basis for sharing common approaches to actually how the world ought to be. Well, let's, let's turn to the audience. Um, uh, why don't we start in the third row, the man in the pink shirt, and then we'll move around the room. Thank you. Oh, and please introduce yourself uh, uh, before your uh, question or short comment. We do accept comments if they're really, really short. <laughs> well, my name is Maris Lurinaitis. I'm a new fellow uh, in residence here at SIPA in Washington. And um, I have some, uh, well, short observation, but uh, I, I would like to start from, uh, I would like to follow up uh, uh, on your formula, uh, what Russia is. I mean, uh, kleptocracy pl plus. I really uh, like this formula, but I love uh, Andrei's formula even more, which was presented last, uh, last night, which is uh, something plus kleptocracy. And uh, to my mind, the thing uh, we miss all the time is that this regime is KGB-based regime. And when uh, we look back to the history, all these things, uh, I mean, uh, kleptocracy, corruption, uh, employment of uh, criminals, they were used by KGB during Soviet times. So to my mind, it's nothing new. It's, it's just uh, something like uh, repeating uh, the same uh, tactics or, or, or the same tools. And when we, when we speak about even about such things like hybrid war, we can remember a year of 1940. Very similar things uh, which happened in Crimea or in Donbass were present in, in Baltic states in 1940. 
So uh, my question is, um, do you really think that um, this, uh, what's going on now in Russia, is a real uh, new thing or a real new system or is just some um, system which is uh, inherited by KGB uh, or re uh, KGB-based regime and just uh, adjusted to uh, nowadays circumstances? I'll be honest, I'm always slightly hesitant as soon as we start saying, oh, it, you know, whether it's Putin or Russia, and just simply looking it back, oh, it's KGB. Because, I mean, the KGB was, was, was obviously a, you know, an exceedingly extensive and thoroughly unpleasant um, political police force and foreign external intelligence and covert activity agency. Um, but in some ways, it wasn't unique. I mean, I think it was, it, it, it was, its scale was distinctive, but actually the, the, the operations it carried out were often unique. I mean, one, one could look at whether it's SAVAK or whatever. You know, they did things from, 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 from the, the, sort of the, the authoritarian secret police playbook. Um, what made the KGB distinctive was its context. And likewise, I think if we look at what's happening now that is distinctive, absolutely, the tactics are in many ways ones we can, we can go back. I mean, nothing is new, you know, ultimately. But what is distinctive is the world in which this new form of warfare is being perpetrated. That, I think, is, is what's changed. It's the interaction between means and, 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 and battle space. Um, you know, if we think about the modern world, it's one of extraordinary interconnectedness. Um, back in the Cold War days, I mean, yes, there, there was Moscow and the Rodney Bank and so forth, but the thought of the money could zing back and forth from Moscow through Israel, Cyprus, um, and thence into Western Europe and whatever, and then working through um, you know, Channel Islands or Turks and Caicos front organizations so no one really knows where it comes from and so forth. I mean, we, you know, we, we now live in an area in which actually money is so much more fungible, and that gives the Russians an extraordinary new opportunity. We live in an era in which it's frankly, fr I think it's fair to say it's fairly de-ideological. I mean, again, in the Cold War, there was a nice straightforward, a slightly artificial sense of, you know, the two sides, the good and the bad, depending on who, what side of it you're on. Now, moral relativity has, has meant that we're sort of really not quite sure often what we're about and what we're really doing. Are we, should we be more informed by the issues of humanitarianism or geopolitics or whatever? Um, we have an increasingly uh, cost-averse West, um, you know, I, I mentioned this point about the fact that, in my opinion, we are at war. Well, that's fine, but unfortunately, in the West, we now believe that wars should be essentially fought with the least casualties, the least cost possible. Now, I'm not saying that I like the idea of boys coming home in body bags. Of course not. But the point is, that has become, cost in every sense, financial, human, or whatever, has become such a determining factor that it makes us very, very um, cautious about doing anything in a way that Russia, as an authoritarianism with massive amounts of control over the media space, um, doesn't really have to worry to the same extent. I mean, it has to worry a bit. It can't just simply throw away lives like anything. But it can be a lot more ex sort of uh, extravagant in, in its means. Um, media, increasingly, not only um, are, are the issues of sort of who controls media and such like, and where do we people get their information from, become an increasingly complex environment. But the whole 24-7 news cycle rush to be first means that it's so much easier to place propaganda, distortions, and so forth in the media space. 
than it was once upon a time when it was all based on you know newspapers, newspapers which had fact checkers back in the you know sort of the hallowed old days, rather than oh, I just saw this on the internet. Um, you know, all of these things actually have given this sort of perhaps you know well, definitely very familiar model, model of warfare. I think a, a, a huge new boost. I mean, in some ways, actually, what the Russians were doing even before Soviet times. I mean, what, some of this actually really dates back to, to late Tsarism. But anyway, the Russians have had 150 years preparing for the perfect 21st century style of warfare. That, I think, is what's different. Uh, front row here. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, my name is Kami Bhattam with the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is that are we targeting Russia because most people found Putin very, very articulate man in New York, more articulate than Bush too. And if English were his first language, he might have higher IQ than even uh, compared to our Obama. And my question is in the context of drug business that you mentioned uh, through Afghanistan, Pakistan. Uh, it's good that you are British because ask any Indian friend, I'm a proud Paki, but Indian friend will tell you that your Churchill Give punishment to brown people by creating Pakistan is such a country when Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, was flying from India to Pakistan. He hit his own forehead thinking that he never imagined that there would be millions of people who would die in this you know, migration uh, thing. So you are talking about kleptocracy. Ask Sarah, do you know Sarah Chase? who lived in Afghanistan for 10 years, she would tell you what is kleptocracy in the context of those poor countries. Russia is not a poor country. Pakistan, India, and Afghanistan are poor countries, and she lived there for 10 years. Mr. 10%, again, the gift that you Brit give to our Indian, uh, us Indian, because we, have, we are brown and we have lower IQ, Mr. 10% used to sell tickets in black in movie theater. Uh, I can explain to you privately because I don't want to waste these people's time who do not know what does it mean to selling tickets in black in a movie theater. General Musharraf, he just average family. He is a billionaire with B. Where would the, these people make money out of the blood of those poor people, South Asian people? Russia is a rich country. It has so, it's a huge country. It has so much resources. Uh, I mean, he is not making billion or trillion of dollars, you're just making, you know, compared to these Pakistani Indian uh, corrupt people who are making uh, egg. So, so my sir, question what's, is... What's your question? Okay. So my question is, are we targeting Russia because Putin proved himself that he is very, very articulate man and he could make his case very strongly on international platform? Thanks. Okay. Um, the short answer is no. <laughs> but I, I will do you the courtesy of a lo slightly longer answer. No, I mean, I mean look... Uh, Quite how you, I mean, how you rate Putin at the United Nations? I mean, it, it's clear he, he had a good UN, um, and in part, I mean, because it's classic Putin, he likes to frankly catch his enemies, whatever you want to call them, by surprise. He, he likes to catch people out to be the guy with the initiative, and, and he played that very well. And also, um, one of Putin's strengths ge geopolitically has been precisely to basically pitch himself as the anti-America. That it doesn't matter who you are, um, if you are a country or a person who has a problem with the current status quo or a problem with the United States, there is a sense of you don't have to like Putin to be glad that there is a Putin. There is someone like that who is actually standing up and really, you know, 
giving the Americans some stick. So that, that's absolutely been one of his, his you know, strengths. And I think it's an important point because actually so many of Putin's strengths are really our weaknesses. It's actually things that we do wrong, he will exploit. And one of the many of the best ways we can do to actually address the challenge from Russia is, is, is to fix our own house. But very briefly on, on the kleptocracy, I mean, of course, Britain being the most uh, ruthlessly but politely pragmatic nation around, um, thoroughly sort of mess, messed over all the countries that, 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 that it had conquered. Um, but the thing about the difference between kleptocracy in, say, Russia and you know, uh, the other countries you mentioned is that precisely these are countries on the whole where kleptocracy, it, it, it's, not, it's, it's not got the plus, or the, it's not plus. You know, it is basically about people who are drinking deep of the lifeblood of their own country. In Russia, it is the way that actually kleptocracy has been harnessed to this grand project of state building. So yes, some people are doing incredibly well. Putin himself, as I said, I, I don't think he's as motivated by personal wealth, uh, whatever. Um, but it is part of a grander governance structure. So it's actually sort of harnessed kleptocracy. Se second row, the gentleman on the, uh, in the aisle. Mark Roger Pajak, formerly the Treasury Department, now with Raytheon Corporation. Uh, I thought you gave a very lucid and incisive presentation of the modern-day Russian power state. My question is, uh, as you're well aware, back in the uh, 1990s, after the implosion of the old Soviet Union, um, Russian crime was characterized by uh, over the heyday of the protection racket and uh, characterized by the Wild East and the Wild West in Russia, and the pervasive influence of the Silozhniki, of course. How would you characterize how Russian organized crime writ large has changed in that 2020 period from the 90s to today? Just a short characterization. Sure. Um, thanks for that question. I mean, really, it, it's best characterized by the shift in who dominated it. I mean, even by the collapse of the Soviet Union, the old criminal elite, the so-called Vori Bezokonia, the thieves within the law or thieves within the code, the tattooed hard men from the gulags were already on, on decline. But you know, theirs was a code which was essentially, it, it, it was about a, a particularly unpleasant and brutal sort of brotherhood of not cooperating. But then, these were thugs. These were people who were actually understood crime. And through the 1990s, really, they became um, eclipsed by a new generation of criminal leaders, generally known as authorities, authorities, who were much more business-minded. Um, you know, the old Vori, for example, going to a labor camp was a mark of pride, showed that you were a tough man. The new authorities, with what to me sounds entirely better logic, just thought, well, no, the, the aim is to avoid going to a labor camp, and indeed avoid being arrested at all. Um, they were more interested in, in what worked. And the authorities, I mean, because the interesting thing is, I mean, they rose in a time, in the 1990s, there were really no rules. Everything was, was being defined from scratch. There were few institutions, there, were no, there, there was capitalism, and it took so several years for them to actually revoke the relevant part of the criminal code, which illegalized speculation, buying and selling, you know, unauthorized buying and selling for personal profit which is pretty much what we'd call capitalism. You know, I mean, there are so many of these con contradictions or whatever. And in a way, therefore, this generation of gangsters were able to not just benefit from, but actually define the new economic order. 
And therefore, what emerged through the various wars and you know, turf struggles of the 1990s is really a shift from a very kind of thuggish model of organized crime to one which was much more businesslike. And if you look at these authoriteti, generally speaking, they have portfolios of interests that range from the absolutely and overtly criminal, you know, heroin trafficking or whatever, through to the kind of gray, so maybe, let's say, a perfectly legitimate factory that pays wages and so forth, but just happens to produce counterfeit goods, through to the entirely legitimate. And they don't really care which, you know, where the money comes from. If, a, if, if it becomes harder and harder to safely run heroin, they'll de-emphasize that. On the other hand, if actually your factory is now no longer really making a profit, but there's great new heroin opportunities, you'll emphasize that. It's all just business. So really, this was the shift. It was a shift from the sort of old-style criminal, which is all about machismo and so forth, to a new style, even the very fact that you know, the, the authority on the whole don't have tattoos. I remember once, once, once talking to one and just saying, well, you know, I pretty much knew the answer, but you know, this is a good thing about being a researcher. You want the quote you can use. Um, Think well, why no tattoos? And he says, well, you know, I, I go on holiday in the south of France. You know, I, I, I want to be able to just, you know, wear my swimming costume and so forth and not have great big tattoos and not have people saying it's a Russian gangster. You know, it's very much it's a new generation that didn't, didn't want to identify themselves with crime, just simply wanted to benefit from it. That was the key shift that took place. Thank you. Uh, Dave Sacco, Air Force Academy. Uh, questions about Ukraine. Uh, to what extent has Russia's kleptocratic tendencies been externalized in Ukraine? You mentioned the three foci of the state being the rational, the kleptocratic, and the great power. Ostensibly, Russia was in Ukraine on a great power mission, but uh, what other um, sorts of um, activities related to the kleptocracy do you, do you see happening there? Um, it's an interesting question. I think very much the, the impulse, again, this is actually, in this respect, you, 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 you hold Ukrainian adventures really epitomize how Russia works. But I think the impulse was great power. There was no sort of grabs for markets or anything like that, you know, criminal markets. But not only did they use criminal instruments in the course of their operations, as I mentioned, but also quickly enough, what happens is the kleptocratic impulse begins to subvert the great power mission. Um, you know, whether it's already the embezzlement that we're seeing in, in Crimea of what relatively limited um, development funds have been going in, or even more strikingly in the Donbass, um, where you've got rivalries which are often uh, about control of criminal assets and criminal routes between militias. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's often very difficult to tell. I mean, this is the thing, because of the interpenetration. Um, when, for example, Lukansk and Vanyets, when they're actually at, at odds, is it purely political? Is it programmatic? Is it because they're trying to basically, you know, respectively win Moscow's favor? Or is it actually that there's just personal rivalries and personal business interests being played out? And it's very hard to, to know other than on the ground. But on the other hand, it is very clear that that is happening. And one other thing I'll, I'll throw in, which is really quite, quite striking and, and, and depressing, but also quite indicative. Um, Russian organized crime and Ukrainian organized crime clearly worked very, very closely before the war. Um, Ukraine was one of the main sort of turntables. I mean, like if you look at the Odessa 
or the border with Transnistria or, or just you know, other borders or airports um, used by Russians to move everything from heroin to, to other goods and stolen goods coming in and, and such like. The interesting thing is that has scarcely changed. Um, there has been a, a dip in um, counterfeit cigarettes coming through Ukraine. But that's probably because many of the factories were actually in the Donbass region and maybe have been blown up or whatever. Um, but in general terms, Ukraine and Russia may be effectively at war, but Ukrainian gangsters and Russian gangsters are still perfectly happy doing business. They are the true internationalists, after all, in this day and age. Second row over here, real quick. Hi, um, Anna Ruchunian. I'm uh, starting at the Kennan Center as a fellow. Uh, sorry, Institute. Um, I had a question, a uh, cautiously optimistic question. Mark, you mentioned um, the somewhat positive changes we're seeing in Moscow. Um, and this is something I've been uh, thinking about for a few months. We're, we're seeing more people paying taxes. Um, and there's more... There are new taxes about to be introduced or already have been introduced on small business. And I wanted to hear your, your thoughts on what impact this is going to have on these small businesses and whether it's going to give them any leverage um, in terms of withstanding corruption uh, and corrupt officials trying to shake them down, whether that's coming from gangsters or uh, the legal rational state. Uh, could that could we be seeing uh, something like uh, taxation representation on a very mic micro level? Thank you. Um, you are so rarely enough optimistic, Anna, that I, I certainly want to do nothing to, to, to dispel that. Um, I mean, I think again, actually, what what this speaks to is is this sense. I think that this is a contested issue at the moment that one can actually map it out in one of two ways. Well, at least two ways. But um, One is precisely that exactly this is, this is a sort of, even if not right at the very vertex of the system, but again, these are people who just want, you know, think, well, this is an opportunity to do our job. And, you know, we need to have taxation because the state needs resources and we have to kind of replenish the pension pots and everything else. And therefore, we're going we, we to be doing taxation. And likewise, that as a result, small business people will think, well, I now have a stake. I expect something from my taxation. Um, I mean, I, I, I was the most micro-scale data point, but I was actually sort of obscurely heartened quite recently. We had, on the one hand, protests against the new um, parking regulations in Moscow, which are actually sort of, you know, quite, quite, quite well attended. And then a kind of one of these patriotic mobilization bids at Vedienka that turned out sort of eight people and a medium-sized dog. Uh, I thought, yeah, well, it's, it's good for Muscovites that actually they're, they're saying, no, you know, we, we want to talk about grassroots issues like local parking rather than just simply demonstrate our support for a regime or something like that. Muscovites and other Russians are willing to be bolshy um, in, in defense of what they think is right. So it might well be that it'll actually help calibrate what they feel is right, what they feel is their social contract with the state. Trouble is, at the same time, I could just as easily plot a negative trajectory, which is, yeah, they will screw the, the people who have little political clout so that they can continue as far as possible to featherbed the people who have political clout. And, well, because that's what everyone expects, we'll get away with it. 
I don't know. I mean, again, this, this, is, this is why I think it's an exciting time, is because precisely we will be able to track what actually happens, and that hopefully will give us some sense of quite what are the underlying dynamics within Russia and whether people will actually still you know, start thinking, well, taxation has to have representation. So in, in DC, actually saying that there should be a connection there seems a particularly perverse thing. <laughs> There was a question in the back row. Uh, Hillel Fracken of the Hudson Institute. Um, the distinction you made between a kleptocracy and Russia uh, seems very interesting, and it seems to rest on this notion that overarching it is a, a project that, from the perspective of the people who are pursuing it, ennobles the theft. Um, and that that, uh, in some way, transforms whatever continuities there were between uh, the existing institutions and the, uh, like the one referred to before by this gentleman, the KGB. Um, f for the present, that, that project is animated or embodied in Putin. Do you think that project has wider substance to it? that it has institutions or is creating institutions which would continue it? Or is it entirely a function of, of the one man? It's hard to know because for the simple reason that everyone has to say the right things. Um, no one says, no, I'm just in it for the embezzlement, thank you. Um, you know, this is one of the ways that you demonstrate your loyalty to the system and thus continue to get the license to embezzle. Um, on a purely unscientific, treat it with contempt for personal opinion, is I think actually it's not particularly extensive. I think we are talking about Putin and a relative <coughs> handful of people who also unfortunately happen to be now the people to whom he listens. And you know, they are the other inner circle. I, I suspect that the wider echelons of the Russian elite from local to, to national are much more just interested in a nice life. Um, and therefore, you know, yeah. The same way as you know, any people, if, if you ask them, you know, would you rather your country was important or not? Very few people would say, I'm happy with, in, you know, with basically insignificance, thank you very much. But if you say, how much are you willing to suffer in the name of this project? That, I think, is the, the distinctiveness. I mean, I think Putin is willing to, to let Russians suffer. Um, and, I mean, I'm sure many others are, are willing to let ordinary Russians suffer. But you might say, when, when it comes to them, they themselves, I and mean, this is one reason why, on, 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 if we sort of flip around slightly, um, the early sanctions regime, when it was targeting individuals within the elite, I thought that was brilliant. I would have wanted to see much more of it, I wanted it to have been much more extensive, and I might wanted to, would have wanted to see it extended to people's families as well, because that's actually where you hit people, you know, the people who actually matter within this system. They, I think, are much more um, concerned with whether or not they can get spare parts for their Mercedes, whether or not they can buy themselves a nice pied-à-terre in London, whether or not their kids can go and study in the United States, and whether or not they have access to the, to the world, rather than some glorious notion of a Russia which can defend Russian values, regardless of the homogenizing pressures of the West or whatever else is going through Putin's mind. 
So I, I, I think this is actually much, much more, more limited. And this is why I feel that um, when, when and how Putin goes, however it may be, um, perhaps mauled by a bear, you know, whatever, there will be a certain poetic justice there. Um, I think the next, whoever is the next leader, in my opinion, will talk much of the same rhetoric, but actually be very much more willing to deal, very much more willing to actually surrender a lot of the sort of the great power imperative, as long as he, and it will be a he, um, and, and his friends and so forth can, can live a good life and they can maintain their power over the ordinary Russians, which again, to a part, it depends on reconnecting with, with, with the outside and above all the Western world. So I, I, I think this is actually a, a blip rather than a generalized trend. Thank you uh, for acknowledging. I'm, I'm David Murray, also from Hudson. So, I, I, Marvelous perspective, the harnessing of kleptocracy and the three-legged stool, the dimensions interplaying. I, I agree completely and I am instructed. We all have the strength to bear the sufferings of others and the Russian elite discovers that about their people. Well, yeah, I also agreed. I wonder if the Afghan heroin trade, however, is not a distinctive thing and doesn't really fit the model at some level. Do you actually harness that? I'm sure the ideal for the Russians would be to move the stuff on to Europe. But uh, who sups with the devil must have a long spoon, and they are suffering themselves deeply. And the idea that the Afghan heroin trade has not only benefited primarily Asian gangs to the expense of the traditional Slavic, and the devastating impact seems to me to be counterproductive and undermining the other great imperial legacies and aspirations as well as the business side. The capacity to mount a military, to have a labor force, to have a health infrastructure, to have a population that isn't dwindling is such an urgency for them. It seems to me that the impact of the trade, and now that Afghanistan is collapsing and the heroin trade is burgeoning beyond unprecedented levels, seems to me that that is a kind of kleptocracy and organized crime dimension that is actually threatening and striking at the heart of the other two dimensions. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah I mean, it's become a challenge. I think the issue was in some ways that at first they didn't expect this to become such a problem. Precisely, at first it was just passing through. There was a little bit of heroin that was being taken by, by Russians. Um, you know, gangs were all benefiting from that. But basically, it was heading into Europe. Who cares about you know, crime that, that isn't actually affecting your own country? Um, but then it actually sort of very quickly and dramatically took hold. Russia is now, I mean, you know, per capita, Russia is the highest heroin consumer anywhere in the world. The problem, I think, is. First of all, that the whole discourse about heroin trade has become securitized and, and sort of turned into a nationalist thing. I mean, time and again, you have Viktor Ivanov, the other Ivanov, head of the Federal Drugs Control Service, basically portraying this as a, a, a th a, not just a threat against Russia, but a weapon against Russia. And it's all this. So NATO goes into Afghanistan. Before you know it, we're being flooded with this tsunami, as in his words, of, of heroin. And NATO's not really doing enough about it. You know, is this not convenient? You know, it's very much been, been this basically that somehow this is something that the West is doing to Russia. The problem is that, um, I mean, there's a whole other issue about the, the, the weaknesses of Russian drug control policy, which has become totally controlled by the notions of interdiction rather than actually treatment. 
um, again, so unlike what you might find in the United <coughs> States, um, but this sense that you actually should, should be hitting it at source, which they can't do, or you block it as it comes in, which they can't do because of the levels of corruption, um, and there's been almost no real resources put into actually dealing with the, with the problem at home. Um, NGOs being squeezed out of, of, of the equation, the money not being provided for um, treatment facilities and such like. Um, and really, it's you know, Ivanov and the Federal Anti-Drug Service, it's their dead hand on policy um, that is very much shaping it. So yeah, I mean, this has become counterproductive. This has become destructive. But I think the trouble is that such is the nature of the system that, again, unless the state is willing to basically put serious resource, and I mean political resource more than financial resource, into dealing with it, because if you really think that we're going to do something about this, first of all, you actually have to put a lot more money into treatment, money that has to come from somewhere. But secondly, you also actually have to address the people who provide the protection for the people who provide the protection for the drug trade. And that means local elites, local police chiefs, local border guard commanders, local military commanders. Um, again, you can, you can nibble a bit, but if you really want to deal with it, you're going to have to start going against really quite senior figures within what are generally regarded as bulwarks of the state structure. And that is, again, time and again what the state backs away from. It's one thing to kind of pick, pick the odd business person the mayor of Mahachkala, who clearly sort of goes beyond, you know, a few individuals. But any kind of true systemic anti-corruption campaign affecting, targeting serious figures within the elite, that's something that, time and again, we haven't seen the Kremlin being willing to do. And that's what it'll actually take to deal with this problem. So at the moment, they just, all they can do is weather it. All right. The gentleman against the column has been very patient. We have time for just a, a couple more questions, and then we'll need to wrap up. you made was it's not so much that the techniques are new as that the world is different. But it seems to me that you need to address, for Americans at least, two particular concerns. We have had before uh, countries that tried to support various groups in the United States as part of their strategy. Uh, we have laws against those things. Um, uh, and we could probably use them. But it seems to me that this is different now <coughs> because the people who did this before didn't have vacation homes in the United States, didn't want to send their children here, which is, uh, if you will, both a positive and a negative um, uh, feature. Uh, how first would you suggest that we react to that aspect? And the second thing was the statement you said, which sort of struck, was just at the end, uh, that the Russians are now providing serious support to particular uh, political groups in the United States? I mean, I haven't, I mean, I'm sure there's some small things, but I haven't seen much, in Europe, we, we see a number of allegations. I had, if you could give me a little bit more detail. Yeah, it's, I mean, I would say it's not, just to address that last point first, I think it's not so much that there's sort of uh, major groups in the United States, though there was this, the fun of seeing their support for Texas separatism um, was, was, was definitely a quite, quite, quite a bizarre and entertaining sort of spectacle. Um, but the problem is, I mean, often we don't know because precisely they, they'll be looking for any organization that, that, that creates mischief. Um, and in some ways, I mean, the parallel I would use for that is campaign for nuclear disarmament back in the Cold War days. Campaign for nuclear disarmament was, was not a KGB front organization. 
overwhelming majority of the people were just were, were genuinely horrified by the thought of, of nuclear war. But on the other hand, it was also deeply useful for the Soviets, and therefore they clearly, through a variety of direct, indirect, and very, very, very indirect means, provided their support. So, so one of the issues we, we often don't know is exactly where, where they might think that there is some room for traction. Because, for example, I mean, it's not just simply going to be about US-Russian relations that they're going to be interested in. I mean, for example, they, they, they might think, actually, anything we can do to um, create stresses in the US-Chinese relationship will, will be useful to us. So maybe what we'll actually do is, is we'll throw some money into some people who are making a noise about US, um, Chinese cybercrime and patent, patent infringements that we wouldn't really think of as a Russian interest but because it has an interest down the line. Now, I, mean, I just threw that as purely as an example. That is not particularly simple being streamed. Um, I would not in any way want to make that into, into an allegation. But, th I mean, that's the kind of problem that we now are in, in that you know, the Russians will operate on this very full-spectrum basis. But going back to this thing about, you know, yes, how do we deal with this in, in, in an interconnected world? And this, I think, very much speaks to, to, to the kind of concerns of the kleptocracy initiative. Um, we, we in the West want to have all the benefits of not just you know free and open markets and, and, and economic dynamism, but you know again we in the West are happy to see other people suffer in the name of limiting Russia's capacities. Um, and I, I mean you know I say this uh, as, as a Brit who is saddened I think to say the least about the extent to which Britain still has a revolving door for rich Russians to come in. Um, buy themselves, uh, you know, nice properties, live good lives, use British courts to prosecute their sort of, you know, uh, conflicts with each other. Um, and yes, a lot of money sticks to a lot of British hands in the process. But actually, we all become corrupted by that. And this is not unique to Britain. I just I sort of use that because I feel I can say that more easily than I can in other countries which I don't hold their passport. Um, and I think one of the issues is that we need to be much more serious about the extent to which we allow money to buy a voice, money to buy influence, and money to buy indulgence. Um, now, we might choose as a sort of a, a, a social decision that, in fact, we're fine with all of that. But at least let us do so as a conscious thing. Let us identify those areas in which actually policy is distorted. Let us identify where is in which actually we facilitate the activities of exploitative and corrupt elites, and at least do so knowingly if that's the way it's going to be. I think we. This will have to be the last word from the front row. Uh, Andrea Lydon of Keith Institute. Uh, Mark, um, coming back to the question about these uh, special features of this particular regime. Um, do they exist any particular uh, features that make them different from, let's say, uh, Shah regime that you mentioned, or Yanukovych regime, or uh, Milosevic regime, or let's say Hitler regime, Mussolini regime, North Korean regime? Is there any, anything in particular? Or it looks like it's uh, one among many others, nothing special. Well, I mean, you've, you've thrown out a whole bunch of examples that are often actually very different. I mean, even just frankly between Mussolini and Hitler's regimes, huge um, differences be between the way that they operate. 
Um, am I going to say that Russia is absolutely and, and sort of you know u unique in all its characteristics? No, of course not. What I think is is distinctive is first of all that you have this this state which unites kind of kleptocracy and political purpose that has shall I say an external agenda. I mean, if you look at the Yanukovych regime, deeply corrupt, absolutely, but basically it just simply wanted to just sit and you know. The people who were, who were running policy just wanted to sit and accumulate money. It was a classic kleptocracy in that respect. There wasn't, in my opinion, this, this, this tension uh, or this synergy between kleptocracy and an external agenda. Um, elsewhere, if you look at regimes, you know, sort of the more, more fascist type ones, um, there, while clearly there were some elements who became enriched, I mean, there, actually, it was the political regime that was the dominant factor. Um, I, I don't think one would really call the, the, the Hitler regime, for example, as kleptocratic. I mean, there was a lot of corruption and so forth, and a lot of people in debt. But th it wasn't, I mean, anything like what we think of as kleptocracy. So, I mean, I think this, this, is, this is, if not the absolutely unique, I think this is one of the distinctive characteristics of, 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 of the modern Russian regime. It is actually this, this combination of, of, of kleptocracy and external ambition and the way to which actually the kleptocracy is, is harnessed by, by the political project, but also the world, again, I'll go back to this thing, that the world in which it is operating is also a very different one. And I think that it, it, it's also the interaction of those two elements that gives it a certain degree of different spin that means it's not just like the Shah of Iran or, or whoever. Well, uh, thank you, Mark, for coming to My see pleasure. us. I, I, uh, we have to wrap up here, but I'd, I'd just like to... Uh, Really thank Mark for coming here, and um, if, if we uh, swim in the pool of Russia experts in D.C., we, we can appreciate how Mark is really a very different property and bombards us with a, a lot of detail and a lot of uh, truly inside uh, knowledge, and um, it's, uh, it's going to be a challenge to, to deal with everything he's put on the table before us today. Thank you again, Mark, and thank you all for coming. Thank you.